Good morning. Uh, this morning I'm reading from Luke 19, 20 through 40. And we had, when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, and the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a cold tide on which no one has ever sat yet. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them, as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he went along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way to, down Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your, your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. Oh, man, no one's awake. Well, my name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy to be with you, getting to preach from God's Word. In the event that you did not hear Jay, we're going to find ourselves in Luke chapter 19. We're looking at verses 28 through 40. And so while you open or load your Bibles, let me give you three quick updates. Uh, the first one is, if you are new, we would love one of two things. We'd love to hang out with you, or both. We'd love to hang out with you, or we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. And so there are these Connect cards in the chairs and in the Connect desk, which is located in the back. Fill one out, and we'd love to grab coffee or lunch, or once more, the opportunity to pray for you. In addition to that, we love God's Word. We love preaching from God's Word. Therefore, we love to gift God's Word. So if you don't have a Bible, or if you know someone who would benefit from having God's Word in their hands, take one with you. That is our gift to you and for your friends. Lastly, and you're going to see this on the video announcements later this morning, this coming Friday is our Good Friday service. We're going to be having that at the Old Church Winery, which is right across the street at 6.30. I'd love to see you there. And so just wanted to shoot you that invite. You'll get more details on that on the video announcements. Well, with that being said, you should already be ready to go for Luke 19. Uh, I'll dive right into our time. Well, earlier this week, my wife, Rebecca, and I traveled to, to Fort Worth uh, doing some work with our church planting network, Acts 29, where we received the opportunity to assess church planters uh, and their wives through a variety of areas. Uh, Rebecca will oftentimes meet with several of the wives while I'll stay with some of the assessors and evaluate the men in their preaching, in pastoral case studies, uh, and then we all come together and get a little bit of time for interviews with the church planter and his wife. It's a wonderful opportunity uh, to, to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ in Texas and certainly around the country. And by way of small tangent, let me just say thank you so much for allowing uh, my wife and I to get that time to where we are able to go and serve other brothers and sisters uh, once more in Texas and all around the country. 
All that being said, what's so great about it is seeing these men and women who are looking forward to planting churches and and seeing the beauty of God's kingdom extended in their cities. Well, while we were away during this time, I would talk with my son via text message uh, or on the phone on occasion, and he would tell me about some of the projects he had going on back here at home. He would also mention some of the frustrations that he was experiencing while we were away. I told him that I was looking forward to hearing about his progress on his projects, and once home, I wanted to hear about all of his updates. We didn't see uh, Chungle for about five days, and so I was really excited to get home. And once we got home, I received not so great news, nothing tragic or burdensome, but more like bothersome, a bit of irritation, if you will. So my son gets home, and while he was looking forward to seeing us, you could tell by, uh, I suppose, my body language that at the table, I was pretty removed from our time together. I was irritated, and in that moment, you would have seen someone who was distant from the news of his week. We move on. The next day, a friend of mine sends me a funny text message about weight loss. And it was funny because he was making light of his situation as he has been in the hospital for almost now seven weeks. And As a result of being in the hospital for the last seven weeks, this particular hospital's policy is that only his wife and clergy can be in the room with him, which for him means that it's been about seven weeks since he has seen his three kids. And so as a result of remembering that and realizing that, conviction just begins to settle in my heart. Because in that moment of irritation, I was willing to throw away an opportunity to catch up with my son and respond poorly to him. And so over the weekend, the Lord just begins to convict me more and more by showing me that the way in which I acted is a reflection to the way I view my relationship with God. And so here's my point. This isn't the main idea, but here's my point of this little story. To be perfectly clear, this sermon is not about parenting, but it is about how you and I jack it up. (laughs) It's about how you and I jack it up, and when we do, it's a reflection of our relationship with God and how we respond to Jesus, even if and especially if you are a Christian. And so as we consider our passage this morning, what is known as the triumphal entry, that is Jesus's entrance into the city of Jerusalem just a few days before his death, I want us to be both encouraged and challenged by how we can respond to Jesus, not simply in a more appropriate way, but in humility. And what I want you to gather from this passage, here's the main idea, the theological point, the crescendo, the climax of this passage is this. The purpose of Jesus' sacrifice promises salvation and peace for sinners and sufferers. When we consider this moment in redemptive history, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but when we consider this moment in redemptive history, history, and when you and I reflect on our poor response and our hearts towards God, when we're really honest, 
what this text is going to reveal, remind us of, challenge us in, encourage us in, is that the purpose of Jesus' sacrifice promises, that's present tense, it's not past tense, the purpose of Jesus' sacrifice promises salvation and peace for sinners and sufferers. With that being said, before we dive into our text, let me pray. God, we thank you for a day that is filled with your mercy. Therefore, Lord, may we remember your mercy this morning. God, as we enter the season of Holy Week, where we fix our attention on the final days of Jesus, may we look not simply to his work on the cross for sinners and sufferers, but to his resurrection, where he conquered sin, Satan, and hell. And in so doing, offers us new life through a grace that we cannot earn. Lord, may our hearts be attentive and receptive to your word this morning. May our affections be stirred by the Holy Spirit. And may our mind and will be challenged by your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to fix your attention on verses 28 and 29. They're going to give us a little bit of context because in the event that you haven't noticed, we don't find ourselves in Ecclesiastes this morning. If you are new, we have been working our way through a sermon series in the book of Ecclesiastes, but every year around the time or at the time of Holy Week, which is kicked off and launched by Palm Sunday, we take a break from our current series and observe this time uh, in order to reflect and celebrate the finished work of our resurrected King Jesus. And so with that being said, as we focus on verses 28 and 29, I want to give you a little bit of context as to what is going on. Okay, uh, Let me start in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead. We're going to pause right there because that expands on a lot of different things. Well, at this point, Jesus, at this point in the life and ministry of Jesus, he is with his disciples, and they're not too far away from the city of Jerusalem, where the entire drama of redemptive history will be played out. That is, where Jesus will be betrayed, arrested, beaten, crucified, and ultimately will die on a cross. This is just about six days before what we would consider Good Friday. Luke writes, as I just read, and when he said these things, he went on ahead. This little phrase is important because it refers to what Jesus had said in the previous passage concerning the parable of the minas. In short, I'm not going to read it because it's kind of long, but in short, the purpose of that parable was to teach the disciples that God's kingdom would not take place immediately, but soon. You could read that for yourself. But again, the purpose was to teach that God's kingdom would not take place immediately, but soon. Well, why is this important? Well, 
Up until now, on a few different occasions, Jesus has told the disciples, at the very least on three different occasions, this is something that Nathaniel preached on at Paradox Wednesday, which is a couple of days ago, right? Up until now, on a few different occasions, Jesus has told the disciples, we are going to Jerusalem. And they're like, check. And he says, and when we get there, I will be delivered and I will be arrested and I will ultimately die. And they're like, right, so let's talk about something else. And he continually tells him this. And he transitions into the parable of the minas because they still do not fully understand what is exactly about to happen. And oftentimes, as Jesus foretells of his arrest and ultimate death, they continue to ignore it. You see, for the disciples, they're thinking that Jesus is about to overthrow the government and he's going to bring about a new political kingdom, right? Like, let's make Jerusalem great again. That's what they think, right? And so ultimately, Jesus doesn't have a political kingdom in mind. He has a spiritual one, one where he will reconcile man to God through his death on a cross, and bring about peace to anyone who is willing to turn to him and place their trust in Jesus through faith and repentance. And so as we move forward, we're going to break up the rest of our passage into three sections. We're going to look at a prophetic mystery. Sounds like a song. We're going to look at a public reverence and then purposeful worship. I feel like Eric's the only one that got that. Anyway, prophetic mystery, public reverence, purposeful worship. Let's start with the first one, and this is in the section of verses 28 through 34. In this section, I want us to note three things. The two disciples that are being sent The owners of the cult, we're going to revisit this passage in a moment, the owners of the cult, or donkey, and a prophecy that is being fulfilled. Let's go verse 29. When Jesus drew near to Bethphage and and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. We're going to pause there, okay? Let's look at the first thing. The two disciples that were sent into the village. The reason I want to make a note of this is because it's somewhat of a tangent. I think this little phrase, he sent two disciples into the village, matters. We don't know who the disciples are. We're not told which of the two go. And one thing I want to point out regarding that is that oftentimes our faithfulness and our obedience won't be seen by anyone except Jesus. That little phrase matters. One of the things that Jesus says after his resurrection is that all the scriptures bring, uh, bring it back to him, point to him. So that little phrase that the two disciples that were sent into the village to receive this colt, to receive or to retrieve this donkey, that little phrase 
matters because these two individuals are written in the book of life. And all that we see of these two individuals are their faithfulness and their obedience to Jesus. And because we are 2,000 years removed, we get to see we get to see their names written in the book of life. Sometimes our faithfulness and our obedience will only be seen by Jesus. The question is, are you okay with that? Are you okay with that? Is your life marked by that same faithfulness? when you're not recognized? Is the fact that Jesus takes pleasure in you enough? God is most pleased in you because of Jesus. Is that enough for you? Second thing I want us to notice is that the disciples are given specific instructions about the donkey. Jesus tells them that there's this donkey that no one has ever sat on. We're going to talk more about the donkey in a little bit. All right, so he says, go in there. It's going to be this donkey, this colt. No one's ever sat on it before. That's the one I need. But what I want to focus on in that part are the owners. So verse 32. Those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. That's it. That's, that's the exchange in the conversation that we have, right? How did Jesus know this was going to happen? Did Jesus prearrange this? Kind of like you place an order online. Did he, did he pre- prearrange this? Were the owners familiar with the Lord? Right? Like when the disciples said, oh, the Lord has need of it. They're like, oh, yeah, go for it. Take it. It's the Lord. Right? We'll get more to that in a minute. But what I want to focus on regarding the owners is that they didn't push back. Here in this little exchange, in this two-verse exchange, we see a picture of stewardship. Think about it. This is over 2,000 years ago. A donkey is worth a lot of money because you can get a lot of work out of it. And what they do is they have it held with open hands. And as the disciples come and they let them know, hey, Jesus needs this donkey, hey man, take it. We've spent a great deal of time working through stewardship in these last couple of months. At the start of the year, we opened with a series on stewardship. Ecclesiastes continually brings up stewardship. And here it pops up again in this little exchange. Lots of questions for you this morning. Are you open-handed with the things that you call yours? Sit on that for a little bit. Are you open-handed with the things that you call yours? Is what you have ready to be gifted at any moment for whatever reason to bring glory to God and the good of others? We can't add to the conversation because we don't know what else was spoken, but what we do know is that these individuals held the colt, held the donkey with open hands. The Lord needs it. Take it. 
take it. The third thing in this section is that we see this prophecy that is fulfilled. Right? We go back to the question, well, how did Jesus know all of this? Well, to begin, I don't know if you knew, but Jesus is the Lord of all creation. Repeatedly throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus knew the thoughts of man, oftentimes saying that he knew what was in man, that he knew man's heart. But in addition to that, what we are seeing in this little exchange is not something random, but a prophecy being fulfilled. And you would maybe even argue that there is mystery in this prophecy, and I would say, yes, there is mystery in this prophecy. It's supposed to be mysterious, but just because a prophecy involves mystery doesn't mean it's outside of God's sovereignty or providence. And so we rewind the clocks to Zechariah 9. He goes on to say, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud! O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This wasn't random. This was a prophecy being fulfilled by Jesus. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul goes on to say, don't be afraid of prophecy, rather test them according to the word of God. Don't just accept them, test them according to the word of God. So the question, the real question for you and I is, it, the question is whether or not your theology keeps God in a box for your satisfaction. Like when you hear about a prophecy being fulfilled, you're like, I don't know, that sounds mysterious. Yes. You've got to have a bucket for mystery, right? Not a tub, but you've got to have a bucket for mystery. In addition to that, does it say more about what you believe about God, that you rather keep him in your box for your satisfaction? That's called a genie. I don't know if you knew that. Well, what else are those things called? When you like turn the thing and then like the jack, the clown pops up? Jack in the box. I was just thinking the restaurant, but I was like, that can't be it. <laughs> it's too easy, right? If you boil down your theology and your relationship with God to a box, yeah, that's not God, the Lord of all creation. That's a jack in the box. The mystery of a prophecy doesn't mean there isn't illumination. But it does pick at whether or not our hearts are open to receive that illumination. Next, verses 35 through 38. We see the public reverence of Jesus as king. This is a big deal. This, this portion in our text is a big deal because it suggests that the, the, the disciples and those gathered around the disciples are, are getting it. Right Earlier, we saw how the disciples are like, right, yes, you're going to install a kingdom, political kingdom, sweet, awesome, we're going to storm the, the temple, right? And Jesus is thinking about a spiritual kingdom. But here in this section of verses 35 to 38, it kind of comes across like they're getting it. They're, they're, they're kind of getting it. They're seeing that Jesus isn't a political hero. He is the savior of the world. And in their getting it, comes a number of times where the disciples 
exalt Jesus in front of everyone. In this text, Luke gives us four occasions back to back of the disciples exalting Jesus. And what we see is public reverence and not just respect for Jesus, but public reverence, exaltation. And so let's look at these, beginning in verse 35. And just for the sake of time, uh, I might just go through these quickly. But beginning in verse 35, and they brought it to Jesus, that is the colt, the donkey, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Those are two things. So first, the disciples, in their faithfulness and obedience, they go get the donkey. They bring the donkey, right? No one's ever sat on the donkey. And what do they do? They put their cloaks on the donkey. They put their cloaks on the donkey, and, and it shows that their level of respect and reverence for Jesus because they didn't want him riding the donkey bareback. In addition to that, they sat Jesus upon the donkey. Now, if you've ever watched the movie Gladiator, at the beginning, at the opening scene of Gladiator, there is this scene where uh, Marcus Aurelius, who is the, the Roman emperor, he comes and sees that the battle has been won, and he's talking with uh, Maximus, who's the general of the Northern Allegiance. Anyway, and so they're talking, and Marcus Aurelius says, it's time for me to go. And so as he's walking away, there's a soldier holding on to a horse, and there are these steps, and Marcus Aurelius makes his way on the steps, and Maximus can see that he's struggling, and so Maximus puts his sword down, and he goes up to Marcus Aurelius, and he helps sit Marcus up on the horse, showing his reverence, his respect for Marcus's authority. And so that's what we see the disciples doing. Not only do they not want Jesus to ride this uh, donkey bareback, they sit him up on it to revere his authority and kingship. And we're going to talk about the kingship in just a moment. The third thing that we see is that as Jesus begins making his way into Jerusalem, this is verse 36, they spread their cloaks on the road. Essentially, what the disciples and the people who are there gathered are saying is, this road isn't even worthy. We're going to lay our cloaks, we're going to lay our outer garments, our jackets on the road. It's kind of like when you watch those movies from the 1940s and 50s, and, and the man and the woman are out on a date, right? And you see this puddle of water on the floor, right? And what does, the, what does the man do if he has a jacket on, right? He takes off his jacket, he lays it on top of it, right? Very Frank Sinatra style, so that the woman can walk across and not get dirty, I guess you can't walk around puddles in the 1950s. But nevertheless, the point of that is to show respect and honor. We want to care for the woman, right? <clears throat> and so here, what we see the disciples do is that they lay the cloaks on the road. In the other gospels, individuals who don't do this lay palm branches, hence Palm Sunday, okay? They lay the branches on the road as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Side note, the color green is often associated with victory. So as they lay the palm branches, they are seeing him make his way to Jerusalem where he will ultimately be victorious. And so before everyone, they are exalting him and his authority and who he is, and it doesn't stop there. Beginning in verse 37, as he was drawing near already on the way down of Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. It's not just the 12 that are there. 
a multitude of disciples are singing praises to Jesus, rejoicing in who he is as king. And they even quote and then tweak Psalm 118. Psalm 118 verse 26 says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Verse 38, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, they're saying we know who the king is. This is the king. Jesus is the king that we read about in Psalm 118 that we learned about at Sunday temple worship, right? Like this is the king that we have been hearing about. He is here. They don't just quote it. They make it personal. And so in front of everybody, Jesus is being exalted. Jesus is not just being respected, but revered. Jesus is being worshiped. They are singing praises to him and his name. And so this whole time, as far as how we respond to God and what our relationship with him looks like, the question here for you and I is, what does our, let me make it personal, what does your public reverence or worship or exaltation of Jesus look like? Are you embarrassed by Jesus? I'm not talking about your Instagram bio. I'm not talking about the cool shirts that you wear that say something about Jesus. I'm not talking about the sticker of a fish on your van. I'm not talking about the cross wall that you have in your house. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when you are out among those who do not know Jesus, what does it look like? Are you embarrassed by the Lord Jesus? Do you not want people to know that you're a Christian because you either want to come across as cool or you don't want to come across as someone uh, who may be like a Bible thumper, but nobody absolutely knows anything about your relationship with the Lord? What does this look like publicly for you? And I get it. Many of you might even say, well, there's a lot of challenges in my place of work. Cool, but you're not there 24-7. This public exaltation and worship of Jesus also isn't random, right? We see in this text why they bring him praise. I skipped over it on purpose. Go back to verse 37. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for. That word for means because. Because of what? All the mighty works that they had seen. They didn't just see him teach the scriptures. They saw him heal the sick. They saw miraculous things happen in and through Jesus. And check it, they continue. All the mighty works that they had seen, blessed is the king. They recognize him as king and what he does as king. Right? He says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They bring him praise because they have seen these mighty works done before him. They bring him praise because he is king. They bring him praise because he brings peace. And so how does Jesus bring about this peace? How does Jesus receive this reverence? in humility. He receives it 
in humility. See, Jesus rides into Jerusalem as a king who is going to die for sinners and sufferers like you and me. Jesus doesn't ride into Jerusalem as a king on a war horse, but as the servant king who is gentle and lowly. Jesus does not ride into Jerusalem as a decorated soldier, but as a compassionate Savior. Fully knowing what is about to occur in the next couple of days, the plan and purpose set out before him by God, Jesus rides into Jerusalem in humility. Is this king not worthy of our praise? Christian, is your life marked by humility? Jesus receives glory and honor before the mass crowd because he is worthy of it. The humble, suffering servant is worthy of all of our glory and honor as he reconciles us to God through his death. Praise be to his name. And so it brings us to the last portion, verses 39 and 40. In this section, just as like some momentum has been building, right, in walk the grumpy bad guys, the Pharisees, right? Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. The scene reminds me of it like, a, like when Biff walks into the diner in Back to the Future to bully George McFly as he tries to ask Lorraine out to the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. And then the music cuts off as he walks into the diner and everything just turns into a bummer. Have you ever seen that scene? Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about, right? That's all good. You just don't like good movies. With that being said, right? Some of you remember that scene. You can think of it, right? Where he says, hey, McFly, and then everything, like the scene cuts off, and it's just a big bummer. That is what the Pharisees are doing, okay? The Pharisees come up to Jesus and ultimately tell him, hey, shut your people up, right? That's ultimately what they're telling him. I'm like, well, why would, why would they say that? One, because the Pharisees were jealous, Jesus is the friend of sinners. He hung out with sinners. He hung out with people who were in the margins, people that you shouldn't be hanging out with. And the religious leaders of the day would, rather than walking toward them in compassion, rejected them with self-righteousness. And yet the crowds of popularity that Jesus gained, the Pharisees were utterly jealous of Jesus. The Pharisees are accusing Jesus and the people of blaspheme. That's ultimately what they're going to charge him on, that, that he says that he is king. And we're going to see in a moment Jesus' response. At the end of the day, the Pharisees were objecting to the person of Jesus. They were objecting to the person of Jesus. If you consider the life and ministry of Jesus, every time the, the crowds began to swell and more people try to go and be with Jesus, oftentimes we read that he retreated, he wicked away, he, nobody arrested him. Here, he's letting it all take place. He is receiving all that praise and all that glory and all that honor. And the Pharisees are not just jealous, they're accusing him of blaspheme and they are objecting to the person of Jesus. And what is Jesus' response? 
Just like Marty McFly stands up for George by tripping Biff in the diner, Jesus pushes on the Pharisees by saying that he will only be worshipped as king. Saying that if the people would not worship him, creation itself will cry out. Paul says something similar to the Romans. This is Romans 8, verses 19, and then 22 to 23. Paul writes, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul and Jesus ultimately are saying that even creation longs for the restoration of all things. You see, for the Christian, this life is the closest that you will ever get to hell. And for the one who does not know Jesus, this is the life, this life is the closest that you will ever get to experiencing heaven. In a moment like this scene, as we say the amens and yeah, creation's going to groan and we get it, we're going to praise Jesus. In a moment like this scene, the truth is that you and I are quick to say something against the Pharisees, right? Because they're the grumpy guys, they're the bad guys, and we want to think that we are Marty McFly or that we eventually become to be like George McFly when he punches Biff at the end of the movie. But in reality, we're not. If this scene, if this entire scene is meant to show us what our relationship with God can look like and how we respond to him, then we are like Biff. We are actually the Pharisees. And many will want to push back on that because nobody likes being called a Pharisee. That's not cool. You may push back by saying, I didn't kill Jesus, the Pharisees did. You might even go a step further even into Acts. It was the Jews who did it. No, you want to know who killed Jesus? All we need to do is look in the mirror. That's all we need to do. We want to say we're the Marty McFlies. We want to say we're the George McFlies. We're really Biff. We're really the Pharisees. So then... How are we like the Pharisees? How do we object to Jesus like the Pharisees do? You might be evaluating your heart and be like, I don't do that. I don't do those things like the Pharisees did. I'll give you four ways. I'm going to walk through these very quickly. These are not in the notes, so you get to listen. How do we object to Jesus? You and me, Christian. How do we object to Jesus? Number one, we object to Jesus when we reject his worth. We object to Jesus when we reject his worth. That is, when we are enamored and consumed by idols, a thing, a person, persons that are more worthy of our attention and affection, more worthy than Jesus. When we allow someone or something to be preeminent, you know what that word means? Preeminent, central, 
when we allow someone or something to be preeminent in our lives other than Jesus. It could be your career. It could be school. It could be your marriage. It could be your children. It could be your pride. We object to Jesus when we reject his worth. Number two, we object to Jesus when we reject God's will. We object to Jesus when we reject God's will. This is when we don't like what God has called us to or when God doesn't do what we've asked him to do for us or when we think his timing is imperfect and inconvenient. Why now, God? I have a friend I've been meeting with, discipling him, and he's been telling me uh, some stuff has been happening in his life. And the first thing that he says is, man, why is God doing this now? I'm just trying to get ahead. I'm just trying to be better. Why is God doing this right now? If you, for instance, observed the season of Lent and Nathaniel said something really, really good and profound on Wednesday, some people, maybe this is you, you've observed the season of Lent and you're like, man, I'm really good at this whole uh, fasting thing and I can't wait for Lent to be over so that I can get my reward. And one of the things that Nathaniel said was that in Lent, it's not a participation award. It is so that things would be revealed so that we would draw closer to Jesus because we have actually been enamored by other things. But more than that, or that apart, we object to Jesus when we reject God's will. I don't like that this is what uh, God's will is. I don't like this is what God has said. And so you internalize it. You reject God's will. Number three, we object to Jesus when we reject God's grace. We object to Jesus when we reject God's grace. This is when we try to earn God's grace or when we abuse it. You see, we try to earn God's grace by indulging in our pride and in our arrogance and hammer out things our way and then go on to say, I have earned God's grace because of all the good things I have done. The things I didn't do, the things I should have done, all of these things, I've kept myself from them, I stopped watching rated R movies, I didn't do these bad things. I've earned God's grace. I demand God's grace. But then there's the other extreme of it where we abuse God's grace. And when we abuse God's grace when we're expecting it from anyone and everyone and you should give me God's grace, you should get, you've heard it even in your arguments maybe. Like, man, no grace was shown. Okay, well, they should have shown me grace. Why aren't they giving me grace? Why doesn't God give me grace? The only thing that we should expect apart from the grace given to us from God is damnation and hell. That is all we should expect. Yet in his grace, he bestows it upon us freely. We are no one to demand it. We are no one to demand it from God. We are no one to demand it from one another. Well, I didn't like the way this person responded. Nobody told you to respond the way you did. Number four, we object to Jesus when we reject the fruit of humility. Similar to the story I shared earlier, this is when we are more concerned with being justified and being right rather than being humble 
and gentle. Say it one more time. This is when we are concerned more with our justification, us being right, rather than us being humble and gentle. See, we're like the Pharisees. But here's the good news. Though this is our hearts toward Jesus, the culmination of Holy Week is that Jesus does not leave us to ourselves. Rather, by His grace, Jesus offers Himself as the perfect sacrifice on our behalf so that we might experience reconciliation to God and a new life brought by the Holy Spirit. That is the beauty of Holy Week. And when we consider purposeful or intentional worship, it's not simply recognizing Jesus, but it's recognizing the, e- the eager work of Jesus for sinners and sufferers. And so as we close, the story of Palm Sunday for Christians can easily become one that is old news. Maybe you listened to the triumphal entry when you were a kid. Maybe you've read through the Gospels recently. Palm Sunday can easily become something that is old news. Let me caution you, friends. Let me caution you to guard your hearts, to not be like the Pharisees. See, the beauty of this story is that it leads us into the tragedy and drama of Jesus' death on the cross, where he did nothing in return and said nothing in return, only bore our sins in our place, satisfying the wrath of God through his grace. This work is called the reconciling work of Jesus for sinners, where sinners and sufferers are restored back into right relationship with God through Jesus. And this reconciliation, the restoration of our relationship with God, brings about peace, meaning, Christian, you are no longer at war with God. You are a friend. You are no longer an orphan. You are a son and daughter. You are no longer lost. You are found because of Jesus' grace for you. Though we will fail one another, our kids and certainly the Lord Jesus, He hasn't and will not fail us because of the peace brought between us and God, allowing us to continue to be shaped and sanctified by His work, to repent of our sin and continue moving forward. Christian, how will you respond to Jesus this morning? That's it. How will you respond? In light of the conviction I received over the weekend, as I get to preach and see your faces, right? As I start walking through things, you see the heads go down, you see the thoughts rolling. How will you respond to Jesus this morning? And if you don't know Jesus, if you're not a Christian, you do not have peace with God. The Bible teaches that you are an enemy of God. Yet, in His mercy, the suffering Savior, through His sacrifice, offers salvation 
to all who are willing to repent of their sin. And the consequence of this unearned grace is a new heart going from spiritual death to spiritual life through the Holy Spirit. A renewed mind with completely new desires. The psalmist says that the good news of God's word brings life to the bones. The purpose, church, the purpose of Jesus' sacrifice promises salvation and peace to sinners and sufferers. Let's pray. Almighty God, none of us like being called a Pharisee. But in reality, our hearts can sometimes be more aligned with the self-righteousness of a Pharisee than the humility of Jesus. So God, would you forgive us? Would you forgive us of our pride, our forgetfulness, of our worship of other idols. May we confess this before you as a church. May we cry out to you from a place of conviction and repentance, not from a place of resistance and indifference. And if so, would you soften hearts this morning, Lord? You sent Jesus to be more than a teacher, more than a preacher, more than a healer, but to be Redeemer. And that involved Him satisfying your wrath on the cross in our place for our sin. This morning, may we praise you loudly. May we respond to Jesus humbly. And may we walk joyfully and in step with the Holy Spirit. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing to you this morning. Amen.